Anybody else resonate with that uh, conversation about the dishwasher? <laughs> yeah, I don't. My wife and I have never had a conversation about it. <laughs> don't lie, honey, I know. Well, you know, it's interesting when I was reading through the script just of this dishwasher skit and then seeing it rehearsed and then played out in the services that the question that really emerged for me in my own mind and connecting it with where we're headed this morning went something like this. So clearly the mother and the daughter had tensions as they were loading the dishwasher. So what would it be like or what would it mean for them to actually come to a resolution around their tensions and their preferences? And I don't just mean like a surfacey resolution where, you know, sometimes we do it this way and sometimes we do it that way and you can use this or that and you kind of scratch each other's back. What would it be like to actually come to a full and deep resolution of that where there is some measure of actual freedom and peace and unity and, yes, joy in their interactions? So, again, as you can guess, the, our sermon won't be about dishwashers per se, but uh, the subject that we're heading into with Philippians 2 this morning, and we're going to get to that actually at the end of the sermon before we do some work on this subject. And uh, as we get towards the end of it, it's going to be about unity as we live out life as believers together. I know, such a fun subject, right? <laughs> And what we're going to try to get to this morning as we look at Philippians more closely is we're going to try to get to this place, perhaps, where maybe we can identify some of the more surfacey ways in which we try to resolve uh, the tensions among one another and even live in some measure of unity, get beyond those surfacey sort of realities and looking at Philippians 2, maybe get at least glimpses into something deeper and something fuller and something more resonant with kingdom Life In a minute, uh, we'll pray as we begin. In a minute, we'll actually start with a quiz as we get into this subject. You know I teach at Northwestern and at Bethel, so I just you know, have to have a quiz, and you all get to participate. And it's sort of my way of getting Kevin back uh, a bit. You know we've been doing the city mouse, country mouse kind of routine. And Kevin has recently been in my classrooms uh, teaching my students there as I've been out of town, so he's feeling for me there, and I found out this week as he sent me texts that uh, he is changing assignment dates for the students. He is telling me what I need to lecture on next. That's really brilliant. The students love him, and this would be my way of getting him back. So with that, uh, let's go ahead and pray as we get started, and then we'll get rolling with this little quiz. God, I ask uh, by your spirit that you would um, give us deep insight into what life in your kingdom is meant to be as believers walking alongside of one another in this. That at least, if nothing else this morning, we can get a glimpse beyond just these common strategies of how we tend to do life and into something fuller and deeper and richer where your joy and your kingdom is unleashed. Ask these things by the power of your spirit. All right, so Andrew is going to put it up on the board. Here is uh, some of the quiz. It starts out with a series of which is better statements. You can write them down if you'd uh, like or just note them in your brain. The first one is this. What is better in church? Is it better to have pews or theater seats? Uh Uh-oh. Is it better to have the King James, the NIV, or the message? We've never thought about this, right? Is it better to have the guitar or the piano? I chose piano instead of organ because I was too scared. Is it better to have red hair or no hair? And... That's actually self-evident. There's no argument on that. 
Is it better to have an exegetical sermon where we really dig into the word or a topical sermon? Can you start hearing the cows kind of mooing, the sacred cows, right? Moo, there, I hear them. Is it better to have caribou or Starbucks? We serve caribou out there. If you like Starbucks, tough. Evangelical free or Baptist, hmm, I don't know. Stained glass windows, well, that seems weird. Plain windows, oh, all right. Easter or Christmas? Yeah, I think we'll just go ahead and move on. <laughs> it was interesting, life in seminary when I went through it a number of years ago and some of these common kinds of church conversations, the thing that tended to emerge is we talked about our different preferences and tensions and how to handle that in life in the church is that there were two common strategies that were often employed to try to work through life together and to try to hold some measure of unity. I want to go through each one of those two this morning before we dive into Philippians at the end of the message, but kind of outline and, and see if some of these strategies resonate with your life and your journey in various churches uh, in which you've been. So the first strategy that we'll identify is what I would call to be affinity or affinity groups. Meaning that we consider each other's preferences or life stages and those kinds of things. And, and according to our stages of life or our interests, we divide ourselves up from one another by our preferences and affinity. So I have two kids. Oh, you do too. Okay, let's hang out. Or I have three teenagers. Oh, you do too. Okay, let's hang out. Or I'm single. Oh, you are too. Okay, let's hang out. Or I'm an empty nester. Oh, you are. Okay. Let's hang out. And so I've walked in church on a number of occasions and seen in the bulletins the, the various array of different affinity possibilities. And that's, okay, that's the one that's most like me. And I want to go to that group. And church growth material is ripe with this kind of thinking. This is what has pervaded our culture. Sometimes the affinity plays itself out in the way we do our worship services together, meaning that sometimes we divide according to our preferences. I don't know if you remember, I think it was probably the 1990s when drums and guitars started making their way into the sanctuary, right? <laughs> that was like scandalous for one thing. And the second thing that that did is it birthed a whole movement among churches to begin to organize different worship services, one that would be contemporary, and one that would be traditional. Does this sound familiar to any of you? Yeah. I, I know there was a one church, a very large church, where they had multiple, multiple services every morning. And the first service of the morning was a contemporary one. Uh, I'm sorry, a traditional one. They had a contemporary running concurrently with it starting 25 minutes later. So the traditional one started at like 8, the contemporary at 8.25, two different meeting halls. And the pastor, as he went into the traditional service, because they were using the choir and the organ and hymns and all of that, he dressed himself up in a suit and a tie and preached the sermon that way in that service. And it was so perfectly timed that he would finish his message in the first service, walk out of that hall. While he was walking down the hall to the next service, he would slip off like a superhero. He would slip off the suit and the tie and he'd put on a sweater because he needed to fit in with the contemporary service that had just finished their worship with drums and guitars. Sort of just to meet our different preferences and our affinities. And... If you're a churchgoer for a long time, you've probably got used to that. I know that I have. I've certainly participated in that. And on some level, I'm not sure it's all bad. 
As you know, we have five children at home, and there's something to be said for my wife and I. We, we want to be on some level with other people who have young children and are kind of in that stage of life. Okay, There's something to be said for that. And yet, as I say that, there's something else going on in my brain that at least makes me wonder how much of this kind of thinking has been fed by and then feeds into sort of our American consumerism where we sort of just assume as we walk around, the very air that we breathe assumes that we should have a wide variety of choices that will meet our preferences. I experience that every time I go to the grocery store, and and often I find myself, maybe you do too, in a a day trip to the grocery store, I go to three or four different ones because not any store has any uh, or all of what I need, so I go to Whole Foods for some stuff, Cub for others, Target for others, and I go, and I'm just mad when one store doesn't have everything that I need. Yeah, I'm not saying it's necessarily bad to think about affinity and preferences in that way. But as a strategy, does that really lead to kingdom unity? Because as soon as I start dividing myself from other people by preferences and by affinity, then what does that mean for my relationship with those that I am not like, that I don't think like or look like or act like? or be in the same stage of life. And I thought about that a bit, and I thought, there's a lot of people in their 60s and 70s and 80s that have spoke deeply into my life. There's no affinity there other than kingdom life. I think about a single person that my wife and I have done the journey of faith with for the last 20-some-odd years, and she spoke deeply into my own journey and the journey of our children and my wife as well. There's nothing about sameness in there other than kingdom life. Think about even young children. Has anybody ever been ministered to by like a five-year-old? Oh, we got to get those kids out of here. I heard a, a baby crying even in the service and it just was great. I was like, yeah, yeah. Maybe it's because I'm not a five-year-old. Maybe there's something kingdom happening there. I think we need to explore that. I read a quote this last week from a book titled Consuming Jesus. And it was a commentary on some of the ways in which we tend to organize ourselves as we do our lives together. And so the quote went something like this, a church that caters to satisfying needs by nurturing and appealing to affinity groups of now we become well-trained connoisseurs. Well, that can perpetrate division. C.S. Lewis weighs in on this matter. In the Screwtape Letters, the demon Screwtape instructs his young nephew, Wormwood, that if he cannot keep his patient from attending church, he should coax him into becoming a church shopper, ever in search of the church that suits him, turning him into a taster or connoisseur of churches, a critic, perhaps, instead of a pupil. Screwtape promotes the affinity-based and niche-based model of church life and growth I'm all too familiar with that. But according to him, this can turn churches into clubs and perhaps ultimately factions. It's an interesting thing to think about. Do we want affinity? Yeah, I get that on some level. But does affinity necessarily lead to kingdom unity? Well, that's one strategy on that. The second one we'll go into briefly as you sort of ponder that first part is maybe even a little bit more difficult for me, it hits maybe a little bit more uh, closely to home in my own heart. And this is that place where we agree that we will meet together across our various life stages and affinities, maybe even in a room just like this. 
And as we do so, from even a good heart on a number of levels, we are willingly tolerating each other's preferences. We'll tolerate what the other people that are not like us might like, and we'll even willingly do so. So maybe it plays itself out this way, where we have four songs that are part of a worship set. And two of those songs are going to be hymns, and two of those songs are going to be from current music. And if I happen to really like current music, well, I'll tolerate the hymns. And if I really happen to like hymns, well, then I'll tolerate the current music. And we kind of have this American negotiation going back and forth. You get a little bit of what you want. I'll get a little bit of what I want. And we'll live happily ever after. Think about that in terms of sermon series sometimes. I can't tell you the number of times I've heard throughout the years in various churches. We just have to have exegetical sermons. And so then we kind of sit through our topical sermons, those really fluffy ones, right? The topical ones. And and so we can really dig in or we really need to have some topical sermons. I mean, yeah, we can do the exegetical ones as long as we don't spend too long in Philippians. These are thoughts that I've had. That's why I say them out loud. This is not just what I see. They're actual thoughts that I've had willing to tolerate. Why is that? How do we get to these kinds of places in these thoughts? where, yeah, from a good heart, we're willing to tolerate, but there's this sense in which there needs to be a dimension for me in that. And there may be a lot of different reasons for that. You can probably think of several. I thought of one in particular that really stood out for me this week, and it went something like this. That I acknowledge that those places where God meets us, the methods through which he ministers to us, the songs by which his spirit engages us and moves in our lives and sometimes transforms us and heals us and ministers to us deeply. Those places and methods, those teachings and hymns, they become very important to us. And they should. It's really powerful when God moves through a certain kind of medium in this earth, whether it be a song or a sermon. They become very important pieces of our journey. In that, I think about a church that I attended for about 15 years or so at one point in my own journey of faith in my 20s and 30s. And for most of that time, we met in a gym in Robbinsdale. And in that gym, week after week, through a variety of means, God just met me and changed so much of my own life and, and ministered powerfully to who I was then, healing me in a variety of ways, teaching me in a variety of ways, to the point that the gym itself began to have this sort of sacred sense of space. I remember when the church moved from that gymnasium, there was just this, this sadness that took place in that moment. It's just a gym, And yet for me, it was so much more than that. God had really met me in those places there. And if I took you to that gym, you'd be like, Peter, just basketball hoops and, you know, free throw line. What are you talking about? And but because God had met me in those places, it was very important. I think about growing up where I went to a retreat center regularly with my parents and people who were 40, 50 years older than me. And they sang these lovely hymns on the piano. Just night after night, the the retreat center just echoed with the lovely music of like, how great thou art and great is thy faithfulness. And Wendy and I were laughing in first service as we're singing, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. And we're both crying, you know, and her her mascara is running, my mascara is running. And it's just. But those songs touch me in deep places. God has moved in those. And that's good. 
I think about just uh, over here to our west a little bit, why is that a west junior high? Where I went to youth group and in ninth grade, I met my now wife, Hallie. First night I met her just outside the entrance of Wyzetta West Junior High, I expressed my undying love for her in a way that only a 15-year-old can. I chucked her into the snowbank. It's brilliant, (laughs) maybe. But I think God was in that place, and that place when I go up to it now has this sort of sacredness to it. You would be like, oh, you'd probably like tolerate my story as I gush on and on. But for me, there's something very powerful there. I think there's something to be said for that. I was uh, just trying to get my head around this idea of how do we understand how we can authentically honor those places where God moves in our lives, but maybe not get stuck there. And I thought about the story, maybe you've heard of it before, from Joshua 3 and Joshua 4, where the Israelites are on the edge of the promised land. They're getting ready to take the promised land after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. The first move they need to make to get into the promised land is to cross the Jordan River. And that may not seem like a big deal, but if you know about the season of time in which they were asked to cross, it was the high flood season of the Jordan River. So it was this rushing rapids that if you stepped into it, you would be swept away and likely drowned. And what God was asking them to do is he said, I want you to actually step in towards the water, and after you step, I will part the waters. It wasn't he was going to part them and then they step, which is a sermon we could probably have a little bit around, right, about just taking that step of faith and then God moves. But for our subject today, the idea that God then did move as they stepped and the waters parted, they came across on the other side. And then in chapter four, what God instructs them to do is to build some stone monuments about the way he just moved in a powerful way on their behalf. A set of 12 stones that symbolize the tribes of Israel and they're very common monuments that happen in the Old Testament. They're called actually Ebenezer stones. If you've heard of that term before. And what an Ebenezer was and what it was meant to be for Israel was a a powerful physical symbol of the way in which God has helped or God has moved on their behalf that they could remember on that. One of the quotes that I read about this is that an Ebenezer can nearly be anything that reminds us of God's presence and his aid in our lives. Maybe the Bible or a cross a picture, a fellow believer, a hymn, anything in which God has moved in powerful ways to alter, transform, or heal our lives, they become these Ebenezers. And there's something powerful about that. Build those with your family. You know, you have those places. Build them as a church. They're important and they're sacred. But the thing that struck me about that is that the Israelites were not meant to stay camped at the Jordan River. They were not meant to worship the actual Ebenezer itself. I began to think about that this past week, and I thought, I think there's something around not worshiping the way in which God moves, but worshiping God himself as he moves. Not worshiping the way in which God moves but worshiping God himself as he continues to move in our lives, being entirely grateful for the way in which he's moved, being able to relive and and, and experience that again in some ways, but not to worship the method or 
this style because when I do, perhaps I end up in situations where I'm willing to tolerate your Ebenezer if it happens to come through a hymn or a guitar and you tolerate mine and we live in sort of this surfacey resolution where we each get what we want and then we're good. Is there more to that, more than that, to kingdom unity? Is there more than this where we can kind of resolve through negotiation and affinity and be unified? Because that is what I've seen over and over again in church bodies as I've walked through life. Just being, it's what I've carried. I've had all of these thoughts. I've said these things. I have church shopped before. Is there not something more? Something different that isn't just American in origin, but that is kingdom in origin. And so the something different comes as we get ready to wrap up our time this morning. I'll go briefly through this passage in Philippians, in which Paul, I think, will give us a sense of what it is he's calling the Philippians to as they move past this idea of affinity and Ebenezer into something different. Okay? And we'll do three quick movements through the text, taking us through verse 8. And I'll pause at the end of a couple uh, verses and uh, have a couple comments that I can read, and we'll go from there. So therefore, Philippians, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. We underlined that word. It's very important. Having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Now, we highlighted that word because in terms of getting our head around, maybe a potential pathway we can walk where we'll experience some kind of different kingdom unity, like-mindedness is helpful. Paul uses it actually 10 other times in the book of Philippians and 23 times in total. And what's embedded in this word in the Greek language, when you pull out the meaning of like-mindedness, it's not, first and foremost, about some sort of intellectual sense of unity, where we all think the same, or where we all see the world in the same way, except maybe in one way, because there's one way in which maybe we're called to see the world the same. And not just see the world intellectually, but it's, it's coming out of our heart. It's coming out of our disposition. It's coming out of our attitude. It's coming out of the very way in which we experience the world. And there was a quote from a scholar that really drew all of this out. I'd like to read that for you, and especially the last part. The like-mindedness of Paul is not about expressing a uniformity of thought or insisting upon a common particular opinion. Rather, it's a total inward attitude of mind or a disposition of will that strives after that one thing. What is that thing in this passage? That thing that is greater than any human truth. That thing is this. It's a unity of spirit and sentiment in which the powerful tensions of our differences, and they are tense, but the powerful tensions of our differences are held together by something bigger, and that is an overmastering loyalty to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. That the way I actually see the world, not through gritted teeth, but the way I actually see the world is I actually see you first. Not labels, not life stage, not what I think is important or preference-wise. I actually see you, and in seeing you, I am loyal to you. Whether you're 70 or 80 or 60 or 5. 
that that's actually how I experience the world. I, I have a loyalty to you as a person first. And from that place, we can begin to maybe have a uh, deal with some of the powerful tensions. We can go on from there. How do we deal with those tensions? And three and four, Paul then goes to this place. He says, so if we're going to assume you have a loyalty for one another, first and foremost, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, key word, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. That same scholar goes on to write as he's working through this passage on this, that this overmastering loyalty, if you can skip down just a little bit, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ will only come, not through affinity, not through tolerance, will only come when Christians are humble and bold enough to lay hold of the unity already given in Christ and to take that more seriously than their own self-importance. It's the mutuality of love that is to pervade the Christian community. The sharing of one's soul of common affection and desire, passion and sentiment for living together in harmony. Actually, we see it that way. Such unity is impossible if Christians are out for themselves, promoting their own cause, seeking their own advantage, do nothing out of rivalry or empty conceit. Just do things out of humility. Keep your eyes fixed on the good points of others rather than concentrating on your own spiritual capacities, desires, and interests. That was kind of a convicting thought. Because I'm serious, I have thought more often than not, oh, I'll sit through this song. <laughs> oh, this isn't a subject that I like to talk about. Oh, I'd rather have a theater seat than this pew. But here's the thing, at least according to what I understand from Philippians, that to walk in kingdom unity, to begin to experience that in the life of the church together, it does not start with conversations of the organ or the drums. It does not start with conversations on exegetical versus topical. It does not start with infant baptism versus believer baptism. It doesn't start with t-shirts or suits. It doesn't start with Calvinism or Armenianism. It doesn't start in any of those places. It places it starts with one thing, and that's humility. I'm not even sure that I can taste that kind of humility always in my spirit. I certainly have functioned in many, many church bodies over the years where that humility, you went... Was it there at all? We did a really good job of breaking ourselves up by affinity and tolerance. But do we actually see each other? Do we actually see the journey of another? Because if we do, it's going to get worse for us as we go then into the last part of Paul's passage here. So here's the thing. And over the last several years of my life, I have begun to take quite seriously what it actually means to follow Jesus. Not to follow a way or a method or a style or an idea about Jesus, but to actually follow him. To really try to figure out what it means that my very character would begin trans be transformed into Christ's likeness. That's why Paul says, I labor constantly that Christ would be formed in you. Become like him. Well, if you want to, in your life as a church, in my life as a person, in your life as a person, here's the deal. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider his equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he gave it all up. He made himself nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and he became obedient to death, even to death on a cross. 
asked myself a very difficult question this last week about life and faith and about walking in a community of believers and what that looks like. And I asked myself this question, and I'm sad to say the answer is not what I would want it to be. I asked myself this. So, Peter, looking out over a body of believers, the hundreds of us that are in this room right now, could you say that you would be willing to die for the people in this room? Not out of a sense of gritted teeth obedience, but because your very disposition sees. Kind of like how Jesus saw when he was on the cross, right? That's what he did. In his humility, he took on everything. He said, I will die for you. That's some serious business. That's something different than affinity and tolerance. There's something very different that I can barely tap into. And when I ask myself the question... Would you be willing to die? Frankly, the answer was no. No, I wouldn't. I don't know what that kind of kingdom life looks like just yet. I know that I would die for my children. I know that. I know that I would die for my wife. I know that too. But would I die for other people in a body of believers? Because that's what Paul is calling them, to have the same kind of act. Would I do that? No. Too much of this journey has been about affinity and tolerance. Not about humility. Not about giving it all up. Could we live in a different way? Could we at least... We're not going to get there tomorrow, right? (laughs) But could we at least ask the questions of what that might look like, of what that might taste like? Could it be a different way of understanding and walking in kingdom life? Could I, could I even begin to taste that idea that greater love has no person than this, that they would actually lay down their life for a friend? You know, the sweetness of that picture really ministered to me this last week as I just had some conversations. And I even asked my, my mother and I, we're having conversations about the sermon this week. And I brought that up, just about being willing to die for one another. And she looked at me, and, and we love processing these kinds of things together. She looked at me, and she said, well, Peter, is that even realistic? I was like, I don't know. I don't know. But I don't think our job is to be realistic. Our job is to figure out what life in the kingdom is supposed to be. And then look at our own hearts. And align our own hearts with what is being said in kingdom life. And what could that look like? And what could that taste like? And what, thank goodness for grace, right? It's actually amazing how sweet the sound that continues to save a wretch like me. For I once was lost in all this affinity and tolerance, but now I'm being found in kingdom love. And maybe I'll begin to see. Maybe I'll begin to see. Like my Savior did. I thought about it, and I mean, this is maybe a morbid thought, but it was a very sweet thought. I thought about it if I was on my own deathbed and how hard that transition is going to be to the other side, that letting go, that giving up, the full and final surrender. What would it be like to be surrounded by people who, if they could, would take my place? Not just even family. What would it be like to be surrounded by friends and people of a community of faith that looked at me and said, oh, Peter, if we could, we would trade with you right now and have them actually mean it. I think I could die then. I think I could let it go. Surrounded by that kind of thing? I think I could. 
So the question becomes, as we wrap up, and we're going to invite the ushers forward for communion here in just a minute. The question for me was, so what is the starting point to all of this? Because I know I'm not going to be there tomorrow. Life doesn't work that, that way. We don't often pray our prayer, and then God waves a magic wand, and we're fine. But could I take a step towards that, and what would that look like? And I've already indicated the step that I would take, and Joel beautifully said it in the worship time on the piano and the step that I've taken in my life, whether it works for you or something else might work for you. That's, we're all on the journey together. This the step that I've taken is just say to God, will you let me please see? Will you let me see people? Not again, the labels or the titles or the things that we wear or the ways in which we do life. Will you let me see your children as you do? The hopes and the fears, the love and the pain, the grit and the grind, the joy and the sorrow, the real flesh and blood. And above all else, God, let me see the Imago Dei, your image in them. Let me see them as you see them. That there's sacredness in each one of us, well beyond the labels, in the affinities, in the judgments that we make. Could I see because maybe if I do, some pathways of loyalty might begin to open up. And some things of other-centeredness might develop. And a little bit of humility might begin to pervade the way that I see. So with that, I'll call the communion team forward. I didn't know I was going to be doing communion today, and that's on me because I didn't read the order of worship. <laughs> but I'm really grateful because the second thing besides just allowing me to see happens to be the communion table. So often, I think, uh, I don't know what your experience with communion has been, but I know so often in my own life, communion has been this place where I make sure I don't drop the elements as they come by, first and foremost. And secondly, then I'm sort of face forward and taking it individually, sort of as this obedient act that we're supposed to do. But it's actually called communion. And I think there's something deeper and richer and some kind of different life embedded in this that has to do with the people of faith. And when Jesus called his disciples to the communion table, he called them all together. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And you've probably heard me teach on this before, that remembrance in the Jewish culture was not this idea of just calling back and, and remembering something in the past, but it was a very much an Ebenezer moment, maybe the most profound Ebenezer moment in which we can experience in our lives where they were to remember in such a way to ask God the power of God that was in the past to come now back into the present and do what it always does again and again and again. And the people of faith are supposed to celebrate that way together. And so we'll do what I did in the, the first service. It's in trying to take this together a little bit more. I would just encourage you to maybe even sort of tilt towards one another, just even a little bit. The person that you're sitting next to, it doesn't have to be some sort of major move, but just sort of tilt your body even a little bit away from face forward to the person next to you. If you want to get really aggressive, you can circle up and uh, take the elements together. But in some way, uh, let's acknowledge that we're on this journey together and that we want to be able to see you. So with that, let's head to the table where the night before he died, he did break bread with his disciples. And he took it and he said, this is my body. It's going to be broken for you. And if you want to follow me, that's what's required. For your body to be broken on behalf of another. I'm calling you to see in that way.